0: And I think that has a lot to do with why I was so interested in writing for children. It's like I was trying to heal. I was trying to heal my childhood experiences through writing um, through these characters. And so it's kind of funny that I'm also now at the moment I'm figuring out how to find the resources to like heal the childhood trauma. I'm like starting to write my first like adult contemporary books. Like I feel like I'm starting to write through my experiences as an adult too.
1: Telling stories requires us to dig deep into our own personal experiences. For Kason Calendar, writing is not only a creative outlet, it's a controlled way to process their own trauma and the difficult experiences they faced as a Black trans person. Kason burst onto the scene with Hurricane Child in 2018. They went on to write titles such as Felix Ever After, the King and the Dragonflies. Notable both for their queer and trans characters and for their dreamlike prose, Kaysen's books are a hit with young readers and adults alike. They have received the Stonewall Book Award, the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ children's and middle-grade works, and the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. In this episode, they join us to talk about the healing therapy of literature, the critical importance of fan fiction, and the connection between meditation and dreams. We'll also find out what 90s film helped inspire their upcoming book. My name is Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and this is The Reading Culture, a show where we speak with authors and illustrators about ways to explore building a stronger culture of reading in our communities. We dive into their personal experiences, their inspirations, and why their stories and ideas motivate kids to read more. Make sure to check us out on Instagram for giveaways at The Reading Culture Pod, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter for bonus content. That's at the readingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter. So I'd love if you could just start by painting a picture of what your sort of early childhood was, was like
0: there. <laughs> 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 so I mean St. Thomas, US Virgin Islands, for people who don't know, it's like the Virgin Islands are right next to Puerto Rico and so the Caribbean absolutely gorgeous, but I did have a, I had a hard time growing up there. Um, I think it's a very kind of like small town, kind of like stereotypical uh, story of like the queer person in the very like small town space. And it really took me until, honestly, like a couple years ago um, to figure out how to like really start to heal from my experiences in St. Thomas. I was diagnosed with uh, CPTSD, which I had not ever heard of before. Um, It's complex PTSD. It tends to mean people who have had like chronic childhood trauma experiences. So I really recently started to find out how to actually heal from that uh, because I feel like a lot of people say, go to therapy, talk therapy just never worked for me. And I started to experience more. I think what people would call like bottom-up therapy, which is more like body somatic therapy, which gives me an opportunity to reprocess a lot of the traumatic events I went through. So anyway, but it's funny. I feel like there's always this weird juxtaposition of like, I grew up in paradise. Also, my childhood was sad.
1: Mm, That is heavy. Can you talk a little bit about what your school experience was like?
0: Uh, So that was a private school where I was basically for the first like six years or so, the only black student there it was only until like middle school where there were a lot of a lot more of us and it wasn't just kind of like feeling like the only person um and i did i do feel like that's something that unfortunately is something i had to heal from cuz i did have like teachers that i'm realizing now like Oh, wow. Yeah, they were slightly racist. Not only slightly, they were very racist, actually.
1: (laughs) Um, Overtly. Overtly. yeah. Yeah.
0: So my experiences were like a lot of isolation. Unfortunately, a lot of bullying from students and teachers also at the same time. And I could not wait to escape. I could not wait to leave.
1: Even from a young age, that's like what you remember. Yeah. I, this is just my own ignorance. I wouldn't think I guess, obviously, there are white people living in St. Thomas, but I guess so that that's like, I, I don't know, I just always thought it was like, mm, primarily a lot of like white people going as tourists, you know, but
0: not actually like living and having families and stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There are two layers to that. So it is primarily black. Most people, most of the locals are black. There are white people who come to the islands. And because of that, it was almost like a double-edged sword of like being isolated at Antilles as one of the only black students and only black students sometimes. And then I would leave and tell people who are primarily black, like other locals, oh, I go to Antilles. I'm feeling isolated from them because they're like, oh, why are you going to like that white private school? And if you can listen to my accent, for example, that was always something that would come up. It's like, why do you talk like a white stateside person? They would say like a Yankee. So it was just like, I felt um, very isolated from all sides from a young age. I feel like right now I am working on figuring out how to – because I for so much of my life, my adult life, it felt like my childhood was all trauma. And right now I'm, like, figuring out little pathways to figure out um, in my brain, like, it's not all trauma. I have, like, some memories of, like, this was safe. This was nice. And it always came back to, like, writing. It always came back to – finding like little, even though it was moments of like isolation, I had moments where I was able to find like some peace and some happiness also. So it wasn't all doom and gloom.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, not all doom and gloom, but still a lot to unpack, you know? So Kason, as you get older, does this get like easier to reflect on or do you find yourself remembering things that made you feel safe more as you grow?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's the interesting part about CPSC. And I don't want to talk for everyone, but it really is kind of like the body and the nervous system feel so stuck in the trauma of childhood that, again, like I started therapies that actually started to work for me like about two years ago. And up until then, I was constantly like, why does it feel like I'm so stuck? I feel like I'm stuck in this cycle of like these childhood thoughts and feelings and emotions, this dysregulation. Like I can't figure out how to find the resources that will actually help me feel more regulated or more grounded um, so finding the once I found those resources I started to feel like oh I'm starting to feel like I'm not 13 anymore I'm starting to feel like I'm 20 I'm starting to feel like I'm 25 like it's like now in my even though I'm in my 30s I feel like I'm finally starting to f- grow up a little bit in air quotes like yeah starting you're to having like,
1: like my... the 20s the experience of the 20s in a way of like the
0: free yeah. the freedom that you start to feel it sounds like or yeah the... and finding like that safety to actually be in my body instead of in the like the nervous systems like trauma of like this is everything you experience this is what you have to stay safe from this is what you have to this is a very happy conversation <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think it's really important for every, I mean, honestly, for any writer, but it just really feels like so much, it, I mean, every once in a while you get somebody like, I interviewed like Meg Medina. She was like much later in life becoming a writer. It wasn't like, she always loved to write, but she had a whole other life and career and this wasn't like what she saw for herself, you know? But I think for people who really grew kind of always new, which I think maybe it sounds like you've found like some of the things that are coming back to you now that did feel like safe places were, like you said, writing. I think it's important to know like where that starts. And obviously if, if for anybody who's ever read like some of your books about young people, like it makes, this makes sense. And you write from such an authentic place. I mean, like Moonflower, I'm hearing that and talking to you, you know. Thank you,
0: yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with why I was so interested in writing for children. It's like, I was trying to heal. I was trying to heal my childhood experiences through writing um, through these characters. And so it's, kind of funny that I'm also now at the moment, I'm figuring out how to find the resources to like heal the childhood trauma. I'm like starting to write my first like adult contemporary books. Like I feel like I'm starting to write through my experiences as an adult too. Not to say that childhood or people who write middle grade and YA are only trying to heal. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, wait, hold on. (laughs) Sure. That's not the case for for everyone. (laughs) Something that... I was kind of like reflecting on was in Stars in Your Eyes. One of the drafts originally had Logan, the uh, main character with CPTSD. Every now and then he would just make a very like broad statement, like everyone hates me. And CPTSD kind of creates like very black and white thinking. It's very difficult to have like the nuanced gray area. And I, that's something that I continue to struggle with this thought over and over again of like, everyone hates me. It's like, I have to take a moment to pause and reflect and say, no, not everyone in the world hates me. There, like maybe there are some people who don't necessarily like me, but there are also some people who do like me, like trying to put myself into that um, nuanced gray space. So I feel like that was the younger, like 13-year-old version, nervous system, me coming out in Logan's voice. And in later drafts, I kind of revised for him to think or to say things that were not as black and white. Anglican church bell struck 11 o'clock, one hour to go before lunch. I was then sitting at my desk in my classroom. We were having a history lesson, the last lesson of the morning. For taking first place over all the other girls, I had been given a prize, a copy of a book called Roman Britain, and I was made the prefect of my class. What a mistake the prefect part had been, for I was among the worst behaved in my class and did not at all believe in setting myself up as a good example the way a prefect was supposed to do. Now I had to sit in the prefect's seat, the first seat in the front row, the seat from which I could stand up and survey quite easily my classmates. From where I sat I could see out the window. Sometimes when I looked out I could see the sexton going over the minister's house, going over to the minister's house, the sexton's daughter, Hilaraine, a disgusting model of good behavior and keen attention to scholarship, sat next to me since she took second place. The minister's daughter, Ruth, sat in the last row, the row reserved for all the dunce girls. Hilaraine, of course, I could not stand. A girl that good would never do for me. I would probably not have cared so much for first place if I could be sure it would not go to her. Ruth I liked because she was such a dunce and came from England and had yellow hair. When I first met her, I used to walk her home and sing bad songs to her just to see her turn pink as if I had spilled hot water all over her.
1: Jamaica Kincaid's 1985 coming-of-age novel, Annie John, depicts the life of a young girl on the Caribbean island of Antigua as she begins adolescence. The titular character grapples with the complex interplay of her cultural heritage and the enduring consequences of colonization and poverty. The novel navigates multiple themes, including strained parent-child relationships, teenage rebellion, and the exploration of sexuality. Kincaid's storytelling draws deeply from her own personal experiences of growing up in Antigua, providing an authentic perspective on the challenges and nuances of life in a post-colonial society. The passage Kaysen just read for us reveals the minuscule ways our lens on the world is colored by our adolescence.
0: So this passage... I don't know if anyone would recognize that in my books, in every single one of my books, I always write whenever a character has like blonde hair. They all, I always say like yellow hair or pale hair. And it's because this passage like really struck me at even a young age of realizing that the way media works and the way that media kind of like glorifies certain types of beauty So a lot of the books I would read when I was a kid would be like blonde hair, golden, yellow, rays of sunshine, blue eyes like the ocean and sky. And just the way that that kind of affects a person at a young age that does not look like that and has brown skin, brown eyes, brown hair or black hair. I realized that there was just like a hierarchy in media and description. And so I think it just always made me careful in being able to look at media, first of all, and like analyze and see, oh, this media is trying to tell me that this person is more beautiful than this one. How does that affect me and how I feel about myself? And then that also just affected my writing and making sure I just never wanted to replicate that for young readers.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, and I I do remember that actually in uh, King the Dragonflies, the Mike, is it Mikey? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's got the, and the description is, it is striking. And that's interesting. I, I didn't realize that that was, or that is like an ode to or an homage I should say yeah <laughs> had you read a lot of books at that time by a lot of black authors like had you yourself be and especially Jamaica Kincaid in particular?
0: I remember Jamaica Kincaid was assigned in high school. I don't feel like books that I would pick up for fun necessarily <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a lot of characters of color or black characters, especially like Jamaican Kincaid being also like Caribbean author was very influential, I think, for me when I was younger. But to be able to see like Black characters in books for the fun of it, for adventure, for fantasy, I never really experienced that until um, college. And even then, I don't want to say college, I think it was like when I was uh, after college, when I started working in publishing, because I think that that was around the time of We Need Diverse Books coming out, um, like the movement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, there's yeah. a word here that fits. <laughs> and because of We Need Diverse Books seeing, not because of it, but there was just such a more a stronger push for a lot of books that were just for fun with people of color, with Black characters as the main characters. I had never really experienced that before. While Jamaica
1: Kincaid offered Kaysen a refreshing perspective, Kaysen's longing for representation and relatable stories led them to a corner of the internet where both could be found, fan fiction. If you think of fan fiction as a choppy sea, awash in Star Wars and Twilight retakes, well, you're not all wrong. But compared to the established publishing realm, fan fiction has been remarkably ahead of the curve on queer representation in literature, both in characters and the relationships depicted. Gender Swap is also a well-established fanfic subgenre. Essentially, fanfic has long been an avenue for writers to reshape beloved narratives to be more inclusive than the originals. Not only is this impactful for readers, but it also gives a sense of empowerment and ownership of identity to
0: the writers themselves. I started writing fanfiction, that was my first step into actually writing and showing other people besides my mom and actually getting like positive feedback. And I think it was because of fanfic that someone actually put that seed into my head was like, wow, you should consider writing like your own original stories also because this is really good. So that one stranger from when I was like nine years old, thank you, whoever you were, because (laughs) you put me on this path to deciding to try my own original stuff also. I was mostly writing fanfiction for anime and manga. And I think that that, I know there are a lot of people who are like, "Mm, no, fanfiction is just like, It's not serious enough. It's, I just, I think there's something about it where, um, there's so much love for the original story and for the original characters. Imagine like the amount of love it takes to inspire someone to go and want to take that, those characters in that world and kind of like create something of their own because of it. Um, I think, I think it's beautiful. The communities online. Um, the number of free stories, very free stories. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I honestly didn't really know
1: about like the fan fiction universe and, uh, and my daughter, Flo, she got really into it. She was super into Narnia, mm. which, as you know, is has like no diversity, <laughs> comes with a lot of Christian symbolism. And it's super dated, especially for girls, you know, and it doesn't really go well with my mixed race Jewish daughter in 2023. But anyways, she was coming home and like running to read it. I mean, I actually got to the point where I was worried and I went to read it myself because I was actually thinking, I hope nothing in there is explicit. It wasn't. But anyways.
0: Very smart move. I'm, I will not lie. There definitely needs to be some, like, if there are parents, like, listening to this, definitely check what your children are reading, too, <laughs> because there are definitely, there's a lot out there.
1: When you were younger, did you find, like, a lot of solace in writing fan fiction? Was that, was that like an like, an escape for you?
0: Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, I think I stuck to fan fiction, um, even past that for a while. I always thought to myself, oh, I'll think about writing original, but um, I wrote fan fiction out through high school. It was definitely an escape. Like it was, yeah, it was, it was just constantly like books, anime, manga, fan fiction, reading, just anything I could do to kind of like get out of the world I was in into like these other worlds were really, honestly, at times like life saving I did have like other escapes where I would, after school, like go into the woods. And at the time, I didn't really realize I was meditating, but just like close my eyes and just kind of like imagine like leaving my body. And I feel like those were the more peaceful moments.
1: It's amazing, like the coping mechanisms, you know, as a kid that you can have, that kids have. Has anybody ever written fan fiction, like, for
0: any of your works that you're aware of? So, I came across some fan fiction for Felix Ever After. There were two fan fics. I
1: knew that was going to be the one that someone well, did. Okay, yeah.
0: I, I'm kind of, like, laughing because one of the... I don't remember what one of the fanfic summaries were, but the other one was, like, this is how fa- uh, Felix Ever After should have ended. <laughs> was like, dang. <laughs> wow. At least they were passionate enough to, like, write their own story from it, but... It was just like a little bit of a oof. (laughs) Do you think
1: they knew that you uh, read it?
0: (laughs) No, 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 no.
1: Do you still like reading anime and manga and stuff? Do you still enjoy it? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. You keep up. I took a long break because I thought that I shouldn't like it anymore because I thought I was like, oh, I'm too old for this. And a part of my um, healing of my childhood trauma has been like allowing myself to return to it and watch all of the anime I missed. It's become a ritual at night to enjoy. Right now I'm in the middle of my hero, academia. I'm (laughs) loving it. All right, Casey, let's talk a little bit about this blog post that
1: you wrote a few years ago in which you were basically asking, what's the point of what I'm writing? And you write a lot of books for young people, especially that involve trauma, some pretty heavy themes. So I wanted to ask you that same question, to pose that question to you. What do you see as the point? Like, what is your motivating force for putting that type of heaviness, especially in some of your stories?
0: I feel like I did start by writing and mostly just wanting to see reflections of myself and reflect, like, more people who look like me, more um, characters with my marginalized identities and not just, like, Black and straight, also, like, or white and trans, like I wanted to see the intersectional identities, but the more I wrote, the more I felt like, I feel like that was the, this is kind of an epic love story era. Like I was like, let's just see more characters who look and act like my communities. And then it started to become a, it's not just the identity. It's also like the traumas that have informed us and who create each of us into such unique individuals that we all have to heal from. So it's not enough to say, I just want to see more Black people. It's also, I want to see more Black people who did have to heal from this particular trauma or also have to deal with like intergenerational trauma and who kind of create all these different traumas and wounds that create like each individual um, story arc. So I did feel like I started out with like a umbrella motivation that kind of started to, go slimmer and slimmer into wanting to focus on characters that are healing.
1: What do you think that it is about your writing that just has like such a strong connection for
0: young adults, for young people? What do you think it is that just, that has this like such strong connection? Thank you for saying that. I think a part of it is being kind of like stuck in the childhood nervous system like I was talking about before, being able to really very authentically talk to my experiences because it still in many ways would feel like I was still a teenager in that space um, that I'm trying to heal from. So I think that maybe because of that, it can feel more authentic um, to some readers. I mean, similarly for the adult book that I've just written, Stars in Your Eyes, is also about healing of trauma. So I think a lot of people tend to resonate with the books if they have experienced what I've been writing about and are also kind of like healing themselves. I think I I try to write with empathy also. I think I try to write with an understanding that everyone, every single human being, every single being is worthy of love. If we're going to go into like the spiritual conversation that we're all like, in the eyes of God, not sky daddy, but like universal energy, (laughs) we're all worthy. We're all um, made of like love and light and all those beautiful phrases that everyone uses. Um, And that we're all worthy of that. And it's really like the trauma and it's really kind of like the generational trauma and pain that dampens that and makes us scared and makes us afraid of each other and ourselves and makes us feel like we're not worthy of love. Others aren't worthy of love. And trying to write from that place. I think even if some people kind of like haven't, I feel it's interesting. I feel like some people have like an angry kind of like defense pushing against that. And I think that that also speaks to kind of like the way that we have been, humans tend to be like programmed into being more afraid and wanting to push against that. And some people really feel that so deeply that yes, we are all worthy of love and we are all these beings that are a part of consciousness and deserve that love. And all of this physical whatever matter is kind of like just the pieces of what is a dream to me, I think it feels like. Um, And then once the dream ends, it's like we all kind of like remember, yes, we are all worthy of love, like feeling like that energy, I think, is what I try to put into my books. And I think that that hopefully resonates with some readers like on a deeper spiritual level.
1: Yeah, I mean, also... I think something that I think I've I've read you talk about, and certainly like in your writing as well, like this idea that, which is hard, I think, in a very divisive environment right now for everybody, you know, myself included, to view someone who maybe feels like a hurtful person, you know, as also being deserving of that love and also having themselves probably been harmed in some way to behave in that way, you know, but that's a really hard thing to, tall order for a lot of people to think that way.
0: I think what's funny is that this is all a cycle that's never going to end because they are the ones who are looking at us in the exact same way that we are looking at them. And so being stuck in this us-them cycle, we're always going to be in this constant state of that person is doing this thing that's making me angry and is hurting others, and they are saying the exact same thing about us. So how do we begin to get to a place where that cycle ends and we can all start to say we're all worthy? I do think it starts with the healing and looking at ourselves first instead of looking at, I mean, I do know that saying that upsets very many people, but I also feel like that's what's true. And I I mean, I feel that so especially strongly after I've meditated, so it's... (laughs) I feel like that's got to be coming from somewhere. It's not just, you know, me making up something. This
1: exploration of breaking that perpetual us versus them cycle is evident in Kaysen's upcoming novel, The Stars in Your Eyes. The book represents a natural evolution of the themes that have been central to Kaysen's writing journey, symbolizing their personal growth
0: and acceptance of both trauma and identity. Stars in Your Eyes is about... Two actors, Maddie Cole and Logan Gray, who are put together uh, to star opposite each other in a romantic comedy blockbuster film. As I was talking about CPTSD, the, the book is a lot about Logan CPTSD. And though the story kind of like follows this, um, the tropes that you would expect, the fun tropes that you would expect from like a romance. It kind of like takes a swerve into the, okay, this is what CPTSD can look like from a relationship. It's all fun until you're triggered and then you actually need to heal. That's what the book investigates.
1: And Kayson has been busy. They also have another novel coming out that branches off into a current area of interest for them, the bridge or balance between science and
0: spirituality. So Infinity Alchemist is set in a world where alchemy is known as the science of magic. An ability where everyone has access to it naturally, but only an elite few are allowed to participate. It was inspired by anti-trans rhetoric. And originally it was based in quantum physics, if you can.
1: <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a very like fun, like a fun book.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. I know it was... Successful And it's fun when I actually wanted to write it more than I wanted to play my RPG video games. I feel like that was the moment of yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's your
0: bar. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and what was your favorite part about writing that book?
0: It was, it, I mean, there are a lot of fun action scenes and there's like a polyamorous uh, triad. So all those elements were really fun. But I, I do think my favorite was probably I'm um, finally figuring out because I've always had the idea of wanting to write a book about like the science of magic. And I feel like um, when I finally started to understand my spirituality more, that kind of like clicked into like the idea of the science of spirituality, source, like it all just kind of like came together in a way that felt like there was just a lot that really wanted to flow out of me and onto the page. So I think that that was my favorite part.
1: I feel like you are like operating on a different plane.
0: <laughs> no. A lot of people it really feels like no. It feels like <laughs> you no. Know,
1: it feels like you are like you are like buzzing or something like right here. I don't know. No,
0: that's not true. No. See, I I honestly <laughs> I feel I feel passionate about this also because um Infinity Alchemist like I said like everyone has the ability for alchemy right in the story. Ooh, I'm having like a gut instinct of like, don't push meditation on people because they do not, like people do not like anything to be pushed on them, right? But I feel, I mean, we're all spiritual beings and I, I meditate. You don't have to meditate. I med- <laughs> what, what, is your, what is your meditation practice? I'll ask it as a question. <laughs> so it changes. So it's interesting because at first I thought meditation was like, sit down, force your no thoughts, close your eyes. And the more I meditated, the more I realized, um, similarly to writing, actually, I felt like there were streams of like consciousness kind of like flowing through me and saying, it's not just silence your thoughts. Sometimes the thoughts need to come up. So follow the thoughts. Where are the thoughts taking me? Taking me to on these memories of like pain, taking me on these memories of trauma that need to be healed, figuring out like why is it that I reacted to this one person this particular way? Oh, that was a symbol of all of this that still needed to be healed. And it's like, the more I'm healing, the more I'm lifting away. um, It feels like humans are all spiritual beings, but we're all kind of like covered by what's not really like all this physical matter of like trauma, pain, fear, like it's kind of like lifting that away. And so the meditation kind of like heals through that and allows me to feel a little bit more of like my actual spiritual self rather than kind of like the cloud. Of what isn't necessarily real or feels very real in this physical plane but maybe isn't as but that is the lightness that i think that people maybe see not
1: like the light but the lightness of, of like having you know taken those shrouds exactly off and away exactly yeah but everybody can have that you're saying i'm sorry it's
0: not unique to you exactly yeah exactly that was the Sermon by Kaysen Calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna sell that to Headspace. Uh, Lord, yeah.
1: This foray into spirituality and energy is something that Kaysen has been exploring more specifically recently. However, many of their books, for me at least, feel written in a way that seemed dreamlike, removing the reader from the barriers of the real world in a subtle way that allows for an emotional and intellectual connection without constraints. I asked if that was intentional.
0: Dreams have always been such a massive part of my life. And I think that that played a role in my writing. I feel like uh, for King and the Dragonflies, especially, that was a book that felt very like, I just kind of like rushed out of me. It felt like I, I say this a lot. I feel like I didn't even really write it. And then I think it was maybe after, and I mean that by my fingers were typing, the words were kind of just flowing through me and not really feeling like I was coming up with the ideas or coming up with the sentences, but something else was kind of like flowing through me. And it wasn't until after King and the Dragonflies that I, what is the name of that book? Um, The same person that wrote Eat, Pray, Love.
1: Oh, um, Elizabeth Gilbert.
0: Yeah, wrote a book. um, And I'm also forgetting the title. So big love, big something, big, big it's like big, big magic. Yeah. after that reading um, her ideas of, like, how energy works and how energy kind of, like, flows through creatives in this kind of, like, channeling state, I was like, that, is, I feel like that's exactly what happened to me. And it was only until after that, that, I started to feel like I had more experiences that kind of led me to writing Moonflower and um, being a little bit more conscious of consciousness and meditation and feeling like um, a whole lot of stuff I could say right now that might ne- not necessarily resonate with what a lot of people believe, but but you felt something like uh,
1: some other power like working through you. Mm -hmm. Hmm. I did want to say Moonflower is a book that I most recently reread of yours because I'd read it. And then um, I did an interview with um, Ellen O. And she was telling about her um, son who transitioned and how Moonflower was like this truly, like, life-saving book for her child, like, in a a different way than other books. I mean, she just really got very emotional talking about it. Well, you're starting to make me emotional. (laughs) (laughs) Do you hear from young readers often about the impact that your books have on them?
0: Yes. It can be very emotional. It can. A lot of feedback for, like, example, Felix Ever After, where people are saying, like, Felix helped me discover my identity or helped me— for the first time realize that I can be loved regardless of how other people treat me because of my identities, that's definitely, yeah, it can be emotional it can be a reminder of like, yes, this is the motivation of why I wanted to write certain books. Um, My favorite interactions are always uh, the people who do reach out to, uh, very specifically with Felix Ever After. I feel like that's gotten the most um, responsive people reaching out to say like, this book helped me discover my identity, or I didn't even know that Demi Boy, like, existed, the label that Felix ends up landing on for himself existed until this book, and that's, like, instant crying for me whenever someone reaches out to say, like, this helped me uh, discover my identity, Um, because that was what the book was originally, uh, like, the main motivation, I felt like, um, because for myself, there was, like, another piece of media that had helped me figure out that I was trans, and it's, like, I wish that there was more media like this that could help people discover their identity, so that's what one Felix to be.
1: It was a piece of media that helped you discover that.
0: Okay, well, now I just need to know that. Yeah, grassy. <laughs> Can you tell, share about that? So I watched the Drake one like growing up, and then I had stopped um, along the way of like it was college time. So I think I like just stopped watching it and I realized it had continued. And after college, I went back and decided to rewatch the whole thing from beginning to end. And there were a couple seasons after like the original, not the original, original cast, but like the Drake version cast where, um, like, the first trans guy I'd ever seen, like, on TV, or, like, as a character, he kind of, like, just sat and discussed his feelings of what it means to be trans, and that was, like, the moment of, you know, I I know people say that this is a trans person. I don't know necessarily what that means internally, but the person discussing what it felt like internally was the moment of, like, that's how I felt ever since I was a kid, and that really, like, sparked me, um, even realizing I was trans. I think I was, like, 25, and that just put me, like, on a If I had not watched Degrassi, my life would have been completely different. I feel like what makes me emotional is the thought of a young, like if I had the access to queer trans stories at the age that so many people are now looking for those stories, I feel like my life would have been changed for the better and to think that there are young people who are, like those stories are being provided, written, like trying to be handed to them. The fact that it's being stopped is like, that's what's um, hurting my heart on, on their behalf.
1: Kaysen's work began by having the imagination and will to write their own perspective, creating the representation so desperately needed in children's and young adult literature. In the wake of increasingly harmful transphobic rhetoric, for their reading challenge, Kaysen wants listeners to embrace the world of speculative fiction as a tool to imagine freedom for trans people.
0: You know, right now, very difficult time, of course, for um, trans people with all the rhetoric and anti-trans laws that are being passed. But I do think that um, fantasy, speculative books in particular, I think um, tend to kind of like be inspired or have the imagination to see what's possible. And it's not necessarily just this world that we're trapped in. You can find more details about Kaysen's reading challenge and all past reading
1: challenges from authors like Jacqueline Woodson, Meg Medina, and Kwame Alexander at thereadingculturepod.com. Today's Beanstack featured librarian is Meredith Derrick, library coordinator for Klein Independent School District outside of Houston, Texas. She shares a heartwarming story about a student's attempt at a thoughtful teacher appreciation surprise. Being a librarian, you know, I have kids and it was teacher appreciation week and my son decided we had these little ladybug, I believe, planters with little roses in them that he wanted to get for his teacher. He was in second grade, and he did not think it was a big deal. Just throw it in his backpack, take it to school. <laughs> so his librarian called, and said, "Hey!" And literally, it was a couple of weeks later she called, and said,
0: "Hey, Nicholas brought his book back, but I don't know if this was supposed to be a present for me." <laughs> or so we got to pay for library books, and they got a little delay in their
1: teacher appreciation. <laughs> yeah. This has been The Reading Culture, and you've been listening to our conversation with Kaysen Calendar. Again, I'm your host, Jordan Lloyd Bookie, and currently I'm reading Family Lore by Elizabeth Acevedo and The Marvelers by Danielle Clayton. If you enjoyed today's episode, please show some love and give us a five-star review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really helps. To learn more about how you can help grow your community's reading culture, you can check out all of our resources at beanstack.com. And remember to sign up for our newsletter at the readingculturepod.com forward slash newsletter for special offers and bonus content. This episode was produced by Jackie Lamport and Lower Street Media and script edited by Josiah Lamberto Egan. Thanks for joining and keep reading.